This is an AMI podcast. AMI's mission is to provide content that entertains, informs, and empowers Canadians who are blind or partially sighted. We continually strive to improve the quality and relevance of our services to be as inclusive as possible. Join AMI's research panel and make your opinion count. Email panel at ami.ca and join over 1,400 Canadians sharing their voice. That's panel at ami.ca. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Social media has allowed people with disabilities to find a community online. It's possible to meet people with not only the same disability, but with common interests as well. Social media has enabled people with disabilities to organize around common causes. Of course, there are downsides. Not everyone who self-identifies as being a person with a disability has equal access to social media or is comfortable with online interactions. The disability community is not alone in turning to social media to find community. What has become abundantly clear is that in the last decade and a half, social media has become a game changer for the disability community organizing. Today, we discuss social media and disability organizing. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and I'm pleased to welcome you to the program. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're keeping safe and staying well during the pandemic. Just a quick reminder that if you'd like to keep up with the latest AMI-audio coverage related to COVID-19, you can head on over to ami.ca forward slash COVID-19, where we bring together segments from all of our daily live shows, now with Dave Brown, Kelly and Company, and of course, here on The Pulse. My guest today is Jess Roachberg, who is a PhD student in interdisciplinary humanities at McMaster University. Jess works with the Pulse Lab, no affiliation to this program, and her research focuses on ways in which people with disabilities have utilized social media to organize. Jess, welcome to the Pulse. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm really excited to meet with you as well as unsurprisingly, we met on Twitter. (laughs) And so it's really nice to meet with you IRL in real life, as it were. Um, Just tell us a little bit about your research. What are you trying to accomplish with your PhD research? So I am in an interdisciplinary program, as you said, at McMaster, um, that's housed in a communication studies and multimedia department. And The thing about communication studies um, is a very North American discipline, so it's very prominent in U.S. and also in Canada. It's interested in how people are sending and sharing messages to each other, and there's just so many ways that you can do that. But I noticed as a disabled scholar who's really interested in, you know, disability um, cultures and um, how people represent and understand disability is that communication either leaves disability out or tries to cure it, whether it's in how you, um, classes on presenting um, public speaking or persuasion or how you send out a message or it's just totally left out, right? So 
that mm -hmm. sort of motivated me. I tried to find my what I was interested in studying. And um, as many PhD students can probably attest to this, I sort of had to find a lot of roadblocks before I found a project that I knew would work. But I'm really interested in how disabled people use social media platforms to organize survival in a world where increasingly we are not considered in able-bodied or neurotypical futures. So whether that's with health justice, environmental justice, and climate change, um, and emergency preparation, right? Disabled people are totally left out of those conversations. Or even the idea that disabled people can be creators and thinkers and experts in designing technology for us. That's something that is really motivating me. So I'm not really interested in how do we communicate and bend ourselves toward neurotypicality and able-bodiedness I'm really interested in how, what are the possibilities when we embrace disability and sending and sharing messages and creating community and what is new that can come from that? And so these are some questions that I'm exploring in my doctoral research um, and my research with the Pulse Lab. Oh, excellent. You mentioned the term neurotypicality. Uh, it may not be a term that many of us have heard before. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so... Um, it is one way of thinking about neurological disability. Um, so this idea of neurotypicality and neurodivergency stems out of the United Kingdom in the 1990s. Um, it's a movement created, the neurodiversity movement is created by um, autistic organizers and community members in the United Kingdom. And it sort of went everywhere um, after that, especially since it was created during the birth of the internet. And it's this idea that some people's minds work differently than others. So that's neurodiversity, mm -hmm. right? Some people's minds are gonna work the same. Some people's minds are gonna work differently. Different minds work different, differently from each other and so on and so forth. But the world we're living in, just like we're sort of living in an able-bodied world that is built for people without um, physical disabilities or mobility issues, we're also living in a world that's designed for people who think or process or have brains that are thought to all work the same when that's not even true. and. You don't even have to, you know, have um, identify as neurodivergent to be part of this idea of neurodiversity. So um, when I'm using the term neurodivergent, I'm talking about people whose minds are working differently in a way that impacts their day-to-day -day functioning. So neurodiverse, neurodivergency can um, count toward people who are autistic, um, have ADHD, learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities, um, OCD, personality disorders, mental health, um, such as depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. And then neurodiversity um, is the idea that we all have diversity in the way our brains function. And then neurotypicality is the assumption that your brain functions to whatever society you live in counts as normal. That is a very thorough explanation. Uh, let me turn back to your research, though. You mentioned that you're looking at ways in which people with disabilities are engaging online to not only find a sense of community, but also to intervene in, um, you know, in, in ways, uh, in, in movements that are designed without people with disabilities in mind, just to paraphrase. Mm -hmm. How are you going about your research? What is it that you're looking at or doing? So I'm looking at this idea of communicative resilience, which is um, an idea created by or developed by Patrice Buzznell, who's a scholar in the U.S. And so she has this idea of resilience is like it's not something that just happens to you. It's something that happens in a group or a community. And you work together using messages um, and sharing stories and 
problem solving and collaborating to find what she calls a new normal. But I'm not interested in normal. I'm interested in, you know, finding this with a disability perspective, a disability justice perspective, and thinking about how do people online specifically come together, um, whether it's movements like Crip the Vote, which is pretty prominent mm -hmm. in US and UK about um, voting and accessibility, or even um, Fatlib Inc. in the States had their hashtag, no bodies disposable to talk about COVID and eugenics. And how are people coming together to create a space where new ideas um, and movements can be generated through the use of a hashtag? Um, and there's this idea of hashtag activism that has sort of sprung up in the 2010s, mostly via Twitter, but also prominent on other social media platforms. And so a lot of usually um, non-disabled people will think of this as slacktivism, but the mm -hmm. idea that disabled people can be creating movements from their beds um, or from their mm -hmm. homes is just so important because we have this idea that organizing and activism is marching and going out in the streets. And that is definitely part of it, but we all have a lane to occupy. And I think the internet provides a way for us to communicate um, disability justice-centered resilience and world-making in ways that is accessible for all of us. Um, there's definitely a way that anyone could be involved with this, um, and it doesn't mean you have to go out and protest um, physically right. or really in person. Right. And now we we talked about hashtag activism with Moya Bailey uh, just a few weeks ago on the program. She wrote a book and it came out quite recently. And we also spoke to Elizabeth Elsa Sir, who you said before the show that you knew. Um, how much attention are scholars paying to the ways in which people with disabilities are utilizing social media? Is it something that's a hot topic in research or are you the, the minority? We are definitely, I mean, at least for me, it feels like the minority. It's always makes me frustrated because um, we are having some incredible conversations about racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, class justice, right? Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to say, like, I, I want folks to know that these are very important and we need to continue having these conversations, but you cannot do that without talking about disability and disability justice because um disability impacts all of us all around the world and it is really complicated to talk about all of these other things for example environmental justice without considering about how it can make people sick it can impact and um, people are getting disabilities from coming into contact with environmental toxins or mm -hmm. with the straw ban as you mentioned earlier like that is a disability issue and like yes it Sustainability is important, but you cannot leave disabled folks out of that um, organizing or, or these cultural movements and moments, right? So um, especially in, I guess, the North American Academy. And one of the reasons I ended up, so I am American, and one of the reasons I ended up trying to pursue a degree in Canada is because I knew it would be a little bit more open um, to inquiries about disability. I think a lot of the times... Um, the North American Academy does talk about disability um, and technology. It has something to do with, um, you know, creating a device that will cure mm -hmm. or um, erase this uh, something about somebody's disability, right? Instead of enhancing the experience for a disabled person to navigate in a world that wasn't built for them or something that would, you know, be useful and supporting a disabled person. Um, mm -hmm. But instead, the focus, I think, is on rehabilitation and cure it's often left out of a lot of conversations outside of the academy with organizing and access is just 
people have, a, I think a lot of non-disabled people have just so many concerns about accessibility um, and they're just so afraid of it. I know we had mentioned mm -hmm. before the program started, like people are just so afraid about disability. And I, I also can't quite put my finger on it, but um, Jay Dolmage, who is a professor at Waterloo, he wrote this amazing book called Academic Ableism. It's one of few scholarly books that's actually written in plain language. And it's basically the study of the history of the North American University eugenics. He is talking about how this idea of the North American University being this like lab that sort of created ableism. And we don't talk about that, that I think disabled people are brilliant and mm -hmm. you don't have to have a PhD to be doing amazing work and research and leadership. But if you want to, um, it becomes really complicated for disabled people because though there are laws in Canada or in the US that say like, you know, you can't discriminate against disabled people. It's still happening. It happened to me. It's happened to a lot of my um, fellow disabled academics. So it's, it's something that we need to be bringing a lot more attention to. And I'm hopeful that in the next few years, I know in my discipline, um, there's a number of us graduate students and early career faculty that are beginning to pursue research that is critically looking at disability and seeing disability as a cultural experience, not as mm -hmm. this thing that needs to be cured. And um, so I'm hopeful, but uh, I'm not getting my hopes up too high. I think <laughs> the fight is still, the fight to be recognized as a disabled scholar and recognized as somebody doing disability studies as a valid area of inquiry is, it's uh, a long shot still. My name is Joetha Gupta and my guest today is PhD student Jess Rauschberg, who is a student at McMaster University's Pulse Lab. Jess, one of the things I've noticed, and I'm not someone with a particularly large Twitter following or anything, is that I often tweet into the void. And it makes me feel as though the only way I'm going to get taken seriously on social media or have any kind of meaningful interaction is if I somehow manage to establish myself as next Kim Kardashian of the disability <laughs> movement. Um, how, do you, how do we organize in a way that gets past the cult of personality on social media and get, for want of a better word, ordinary people talking to each other? That's what is so great about disability Twitter. Um, I think there's a lot that needs to happen, especially with um, conversations about race and disability these past couple months following, um, you know, uprisings um, in support of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. movement. A lot of folks, like especially on Twitter, have used their disabilities as an excuse for their racist behavior, which is not okay. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's very disheartening. That being said, I think that a lot of people are using disability Twitter as a way to start having conversations about the intersections of race and disability, anti-blackness in disability communities. So I think it is, although no place is perfect, and I think that especially disability Twitter needs to start having these conversations, especially um, white disabled folks and non-black disabled folks. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, I, I think it is definitely, I had to put some work in it because I don't know, I'm, I'm just another person tweeting out into the void sometimes too, but I think following... Um, the disability Twitter hashtag helped connect me with other people. And something that I really liked about disability Twitter is I have internet, like internet friends that have become real life friends and people that I talk to on a daily basis. And 
I think it's an important tool to help disabled people feel a lot less alone. So mm. I've found a lot of community of other, especially as a disabled PhD student, you're often one in zero, like there, or rather there's not many, it's very rare that you'll find other disabled people in your programs. I am one of few, I think at my university, but um, through Twitter, mm -hmm. I found like other students studying in Ontario or studying in Canada or studying in my discipline that I was able to connect with. And that's really great. So if you, um, for folks who are interested in getting, you know, connected with disability Twitter, um, there are hashtags that go around that help sustain this community. So I know um, there's the no end in sight void, which is hashtag N-E-I-S void. And so that is a great resource for disabled folks, especially folks with chronic illness and chronic pain to come together and find community about talking about chronic illness, especially when a lot of doctors or healthcare providers don't necessarily provide the support that so many chronically ill, spoony, and folks with chronic pain need. And then a lot of, I know there's um, a bunch of chats that folks moderate, so. I know using... Alice Wong does a crypt, uh, the crypto vote chat. Yeah. Uh, she just did one quite recently. Um, as great as it is to be on social media, I would be remiss if I didn't strike a bit of a cautionary note. We know that the moment we get on social media, we do tend to give up a degree of our privacy. Mm -hmm. We also know that social media can be a toxic space. I mean, if you think back to Gamergate, for example, that was a really yeah. horrific example of sexism. And it can also be a, a, a way in which state surveillance happens. And we, rec we recognize the problems. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that's a reason not to be on social media, but how do we work around these problems? It's such a huge issue, and um, there was a study done, I, I don't remember the author, but I know it's published in an edited collection called Feminist Surveillance Studies by Rachel Dubrovsky and um, Shoshana Magnet, who's at University of Ottawa. Um, so they had a chapter in this collection about disabled people and chronically ill people whose um, workplaces, uh, I guess their bosses were mm -hmm. looking at their Facebook pictures and using that to say, well, you're not actually disabled if you're smiling and you went on vacation two years ago and you posted a picture about it, right? So you must have been lying about having to take that day off and it becomes a huge security issue. And something that um, that's discussed in Moya Bailey's book um, that she just recently published and something that I'm grappling with is this idea of using social media posts in research. Um, and so mm -hmm. right now, the REB, which is sort of the head of um, research ethics across Canada, they consider most um, internet posts and social media posts as public information, but I don't think that's enough. I think, especially when you're, of course, like, some people are verified, and so they have given up that degree of privacy even more, and they're very much themselves. They don't have what is called a burner account where your identity mm -hmm. is still somewhat hidden. So yes, like there are some verified disabled Twitter users um, who are using their platforms, and they often do like interviews and things like that, um, and are pretty prominent. But I worry about, you know, what does it mean when I cite somebody's tweet? Um, mm -hmm. or even paraphrase their tweet and, and try to protect their anonymity as much as I can. So I think there's, um, it's a new territory for researchers um, working in areas of digital media and social media, you know, because it can be toxic. It can, what happens if I, you know, mention somebody's tweet and 
that has a really dangerous outcome for them. And then mm -hmm. in other ways, using people's information, especially um, a lot of black women and black femme Twitter users are experienced misogynoir and have their, which is the idea that um, black women's and black femmes work is erased and stolen from them and they're not credited mm -hmm. for their labor. And so that has happened a lot. Um, even in disability communities where um, non-black disabled Twitter users pass up other people's ideas, specifically black people's mm -hmm. ideas as their own. And so, yeah, there's definitely some um, issues of toxicity and ethics. This is a new territory for a lot of us. And I think as social media researchers, we need to do a really important job of protecting the words and the work of people. We think that because there's a screen or, you know, it's the internet and it's kind of like this, we have this free terrain about what to do. But um, I think being a disabled person, um, I have this ethics of care that I think so many of us have. Um, mm -hmm. And wanting to, I, I really do want to protect everyone um, who I come in contact with. And so making, maybe that's paraphrasing um, an instance that happened on Twitter instead of citing the tweets or asking people, mm -hmm. hey, are you okay if I cite this tweet for the paper? I'll share it with you before I send it out somewhere so you have full permission about what to do. And then something really great that Moya Bailey did in her book is I think for every hashtag movement that they wrote about, the authors wrote mm -hmm. about, they had somebody from the movement that was really integral to it use their own work, like have space to say in their own words what hashtag um, solidarity is for white women meant or hashtag mm -hmm. black lives matter. What did that mean? Right. So I think mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of that I would want to do, especially for people in my community to have that platform um, as a person, even though I'm disabled as a person in the academy, as a white person in the academy, I still have quite a bit of privilege and power. And instead of wielding that to um, not fix things, I think one thing that disabled researchers can do is use their space to bring other folks in and say, hey, do you want to write and help me contribute to this project, right? So mm -hmm. I think there's an opportunity for social media collaboration that can maybe divest from the toxicity and stealing and plagiarization and misogynoir that often happens in digital spaces. The other sort of paradigm that I would want to question is the the, the the distinction that's made between the online world and the quote-unquote real world. I mean, mm -hmm. I joked about it right off the top, right? I said, it's nice to meet you IRL. But the fact of the matter is the real world uh, and the online world, the boundary is actually quite porous. And the, the what happens on the internet and in digital spaces is, I think you'd agree, a reflection of the real world. So how do, people, how do we make those connections and bridges with organizing? Uh, obviously, there's a lot that can be done online, but how do we also ensure that organizing offline and public policy discussions um, and, you know, the built environment, that these things are also taking into consideration the voices of people with disabilities? What role does digital activism, digital media activism play in that? Mm hmm. So I think that a lot of non-disabled people would say what we do is slacktivism. I would say you are so wrong. Um, but I, think <laughs> I was shaking good, my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think me too. I think a good social movement um, or one that is, I don't know if I would use the word good, but for the lack of a better term that's coming to me, we'll say like a well-developed social movement is one that has actors in many lanes. So it might originate online, but 
Um, there are some offline impacts. And this is something I had a reflection about um, reading Moya Bailey and Sarah Jackson and Brooke Foucault Wells' mm -hmm. book, Hashtag Activism, which is also for, I'll make an aside, for a, an academic book, also pretty much written in plain language and mm -hmm. would highly recommend it um, to folks. But they talked about how as the internet emerged and social media networks emerged, online discourses um, are reflecting offline conversations. But I would say now that, you know, I'm someone who sort of grew up with social media as it really became popular. Um, so it wasn't always around, but by the time I was a teenager, I mean, Tumblr was in its heyday and people had Facebook mm -hmm. and MySpace, Twitter's emerging at this point, right? I would say the conversations we're having online shape offline conversations. And so we need to make that connection and realize that, okay, for example, with hashtag me too, which is a, a big deal. So that actually emerged as an offline conversation with Tarana Burke, who is a, was organizing in Philadelphia mm -hmm. with a black feminist um, community collective with the phrase Me Too. When it was used online three years ago and the digital Me Too movement emerged, we had this huge explosion, at least in North American culture of, I noticed there was like a big shift after those first few weeks of the hashtag Me Too becoming mm -hmm. viral. And I think we can notice that as well with hashtag Black Lives Matter. That hashtag started on, it might have been an offline discourse, but once it emerged online and went viral, it can shift things. Um, and I think Alice Wong's work with hashtag Crip the Vote has changed that too. Felisa Thompson's hashtag Disability So White also has done that too. I'm going to have to wrap it up here, but thank you so much for being on the program today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And this was awesome. Where can we find you on Twitter and Instagram? I, so I have the same account um, name. It's at disabled PhD, all one word, all lowercase. Um, so you can find me there and I'm tweeting about many of the things I discussed today and sharing some aspects of my uh, journey as a PhD student. So I'd love to connect with anyone and you can find me there. That was Jess Rauschberg, who is a PhD student at McMaster University's Pulse Lab, an interdisciplinary humanities scholar who's talking about digital media accessibility and community organizing for people with disabilities. You can catch my conversation with Jess, as well as interviews we did with Moya Bailey and Elizabeth Elsesser on your favorite podcast platforms. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll have a couple of additional remarks there, but I'm going to wrap it up for today. I'd like to thank Jess Rauchberg for being the, my guest on the program. Our technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is our manager of AMI Audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. And you can always find us on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag pulse AMI, or you can find me on Twitter at Juwita Gupta. I'd love to follow you and hear about some of the cool work that you're doing. Thanks a lot for listening to the program. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey.